This week on the Back Table Podcast. At that point, the clot can be removed from the basket, set off to the back table, and you can look at the morphology of the clot. And I think that's probably the most satisfying part about removing clot this way is that we can tangibly identify what we've taken out. And it's, it's amazing that the different type of clot that we can pull based on when patients had symptoms. You can really start to identify what's fresh clot, what's clot as it starts to organize a week to three weeks later, and what chronic things you can still remove after months of clot formation. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast. If you are a new listener, welcome. For our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. Backtable is a podcast committed to all things IR and endovascular. I'm Chris Beck and I'm a private practice interventional radiologist based out of New Orleans. I'll be your host for today. We have a great episode lined up, but before we get to that, I would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Inari Medical. Inari Medical's mission is to treat and transform the lives of patients suffering from venous diseases with purpose-built solutions for removing large blood clots from the venous anatomy without the need for thrombolytic drugs. Inari is pioneering devices such as the clot retriever, specifically designed for the venous anatomy and its unique clot morphology. You can find out more at inarimedical.com. With that out of the way, let's get started and happy to introduce our two guests today. We have Dr. David Dexter and Dr. Stephen Abramowitz. Um, David, uh, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the practice? Sure. Well, Chris, thanks for having us on the uh, program today. We really appreciate the opportunity to talk about venous disease. So I was a vascular surgery fellow from 2010 to 2012 at New York University in Manhattan. I took my first job out of training in uh, coastal Virginia. I currently spend most of my time in Norfolk. Um, I joined a group of slightly more than 20 vascular surgeons. And when I came to practice, they were specializing in complex aortic disease, PAD, carotid stenting, and dialysis access, and they had a pre-existing vein center, which was very, very well branded, but no one was doing advanced deep venous work. So I found a niche fairly quickly within my first or second year of practice, uh, developing a program for DVT, pulmonary embolism, and venous denting. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, Stephen, would you take a moment and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your practice? Yeah, absolutely. And again, thank you for having both of us on the program. Uh, of course. My name is Stephen Abramowitz. I trained at Mount Sinai and finished up in 2014, where I came down to Washington, D.C. to join MedStar Health and practice at MedStar Washington Hospital Center, MedStar MedStar Georgetown University Hospital, and MedStar Montgomery Medical Center. And uh, down here, you know, my practice is about 30 to 40 percent deep venous, and the rest is arterial. And you know, similar to what uh, David's saying, you know, there's a, there's a very big patient population in most communities in most major metropolitan areas, and I'd say, you know, across the country of untreated post-thrombotic patients uh, who are suffering from the sequelae of acute DVT long-term. And I think that what I found in DC, especially in my hospital network, is that a large number of these patients were being treated in wound care centers uh, with kind of no results in terms of their symptoms or their ulcer healing potential. And there's a huge opportunity for us to prevent that disease process from progressing by intervening on the acute state, which is deep vein thrombosis. Okay, interesting. So, in, and we'll kind of get into it a little bit more, but in, in terms of your practice, um, 
I guess the question is, how do you get patients? It seemed like you touched upon it a little bit that a lot of these patients were originating in wound care, and then there was maybe a funnel then to getting consults uh, via the wound care service. Yeah, well, I mean, in, in my opinion, by the time someone's in wound care, they're already five, 10 years past the point of where we could have done something for their acute process that led to their chronic disease state. So post-neurotic syndrome is the long-term impact on the vein and its ability to carry blood in a low-pressure, kind of low-flow state. Uh, once the vein is scarred and there's a change in that compliance from the inflammatory process that uh, is, is instigated to deal with deep vein thrombosis, then you kind of have, you're behind the eight ball. And so really, it's not targeting the wound care patients. It's targeting those patients that are presenting with acute DVT in the emergency room, in urgent care centers, in the outpatient or inpatient setting to prevent them from becoming those chronic wound patients 5, 10, 15 years down the line. Okay. Uh, David, yes. can you speak a little bit about to um, how, what, or what are some common referral patterns for your practice in terms of DVT? Yeah, so Steve said it exactly right, which is the right patients don't come at the right time and the wrong patients come at the, at the, at the, the wrong time, really. So when I started in practice, the first system-wide initiative that I took on was to start an algorithm and a treatment paradigm for acute DVT. So our acute DVT pathway starts when any patient shows up either to one of our family practice doctors in our multi-specialty group or one of our urgent cares or one of our ERs. And we've integrated this algorithm into the electronic medical record. So once patients are divided up into high-risk or low-risk categories, we determine who should go home, who should be admitted to the hospital, and who should see an interventionalist early. So I'm very fortunate that, for me, referrals aren't necessarily directly to me. They're to the right interventionalist at the right time. Because I do such a, a large burden of venous work and some of the more complex stuff that if my partners or uh, my competitors see something that they don't want to take on, they'll then send that on to me. But I will say that there is a huge unmet need for these DVT patients uh, in the community and coming up with a really well-oiled system that gets them in and seen and treated and triaged appropriately is really important. Whenever you were first getting into your job and, and first starting your practice, were, were you a part of that process? We're trying to build in that infrastructure, whether it be physical or via the EMR, to help with those patients getting seen by the right personnel? Uh, absolutely. So uh, when PSI-12 started about six years ago, the hospital saw that they might lose half a percent or one percent of their Medicare collection dollars if they have inpatient acquired DVT events. So we decided at that point as the vascular service line to leverage that. So that was our opportunity. And I shared that with a partner of mine to come up with a treatment method that didn't just deal with the PSI-12 patients. And the PSI-12 patients are people who've had an operation and then probably don't get the right prophylaxis and get a DVT. We used it to say, let's use this as a springboard for all VTE, DVT, PE, inpatient, outpatient, and sort of spread from there in both directions. Okay. Um, switching gears a little bit and, and moving over to Stephen, um, can you talk a little bit about when a patient first appears in your clinic? Um, what, does, uh, what does your evaluation look like in terms of what are the, the most important things you need to know? What are the most important things about your physical exam? And, and I get it that it, it's broad-based, um, but if you could drill down on a couple of things that are, are really like high-target areas for people who are getting in, 
to deep venous work or potentially some uh, intermediate experienced practitioners? Yeah, I think one of the most fascinating things about DVT as a disease process for me is how variable people and patients experience their symptoms. I'll have patients who will come in with a DVT extending from the common iliac vein all the way down to the tibials, and they'll have minor swelling and say that they are not in a significant amount of pain. And I'll have a patient come in with you know, a very uh, isolated tibial DVT and, you know, writhing in discomfort with extreme swelling and tenderness on dorsiflexion of the foot. So a lot of it is about finding a way to approach the patients that's standardized to you. So in our clinic, we tend to use the Vlalta score. Uh, You know, there's a venous clinical severity score. There are a variety of different scoring systems out there. But I think having a standardized way of approaching how you're assessing the symptoms of the patient is really key. Uh, because, you know, in, in managing the patients in both their expectations for recovery and understanding how they respond to whatever therapy you choose, be it uh, something that's medical or something that's interventional, you, you have to have a way to follow them. And a lot of that has to do with some scoring system that you can use that's in part subjective and in part objective. Um, so that's that's key, I think, first in terms of how you work up the patient. Also, then coming up with an algorithm for imaging to determine the extent of the disease because a lot of times it's the extent of the thrombus burden that's going to guide you in terms of what you recommend to the patient. So that could be either a duplex uh, or for some patients who may be a higher risk for proximal propagation or have a history of prior DVT, instrumentation, or an IBC filter that could be coaxial imaging. Are there any specific um, labs that you're interested in in terms of like hypercoagulable workup or, or are those things um, sussed out by another service line or like uh, hematology potentially? You know, in our group, for the most part, if somebody comes in and they're young uh, and they fit the risk profile for having a, uh, a hypercoagulable state, we'll, of course, uh, refer them to hematology. Uh, and for someone who's older, uh, if we think that it's provoked or we can come up with a reason why we think the DVT is provoked, we don't necessarily consult hematology. But for patients who we think there may be an underlying malignancy, we'll absolutely bring their primary care physician on board to help guide that workup. Um, but okay. one thing that's nice about uh, in terms of the DVT treatment, is you don't necessarily need to have that consultation in place to begin your independent assessment or your independent treatment algorithm. For the most part, patients who are getting intervention or who are not getting intervention are going to be on anticoagulation for at least three to six months, depending upon which guidelines you follow, uh, if not lifelong. And so that gives you time to bring in other consult consulting services without the need to, to have them guide your decision-making process. David, back over to you. Same question. Um, can you tell us what it looks like when a patient shows up to your clinic and and how you initiate that that process, that interview? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna try not to repeat what Stephen said because he and I have been friends for a while and we see things in very similar manners. So I think that everything he said about the clinic workup would would sound fairly uh, rote coming out of my mouth since he just said it. So I'll say when somebody comes to the ER and we've now made the decision that they need to have their DVT treated, I think there's some very specific things that I'm interested in uh, to make sure that I know that what I'm going to do is going to work and is going to be safe. So the first thing that I do is a true bleeding assessment. So regardless regardless of what intervention is warranted, it's important to understand how the patient's going to tolerate anticoagulation and how they're going to tolerate a thrombolytic agent if we plan on giving one. So I do a a bleeding screen questionnaire myself. So even though I have six fellows and a slew of residents and physicians assistants and nurse practitioners who do a wonderful job, I still, in front of every patient, ask the same series of questions. We do a you know nasal bleeding, oral bleeding, rectal bleeding, vaginal bleeding, urinary bleeding, as well as a stroke check, 
And then we talk about cancer. We talk about whether they've had metastatic disease. At that point, some people may get a head CT scan before we go along and offer them an intervention. Sometimes we don't. depends on what cancer they may have and if they've had brain mets or, or, or at least at risk of brain mets. Um, and I do that routinely. It's just part of the, of the history that I do. The second question that I always ask them is about their mobility. So when we talk about all the scoring systems for how active and how mobile they are, it really doesn't matter how mobile they are now that they have the clot since they've been suffering for hopefully only a couple days, but sometimes days to weeks and on some horribly rare occasions, months. It's important that I look at how mobile they're going to be and help determine, are they really going to have post-thrombotic syndrome later? Are they going to be ambulatory? Are they going to walk? What am I really trying to treat? And the more they walk, the more they're going to help themselves. And then the third question that I always try to dive into on the prehistory is understanding why the DVT developed. So very often the risks of rethrombosis are identifiable on a thorough questionnaire of prior history of DVT, prior family history of clotting conditions. And I think the most interesting part of it is what they've had done for surgical interventions that may interrupt the venous system. And it's amazing how many times in the past eight years I've found someone who's had a central venous injury where something was ligated, sutured, ablated, and the patient was just completely unaware. It's that untoward operation during a total hip or during a spine operation where a common femoral vein is seen laterally, where the iliac vein is mobilized and then ligated, and the patient just didn't know that they were immobile, didn't have much leg swelling, and then weeks later identified the problems. So those are the three biggest things I focus on, at least in the ER. And you kind of touched upon it. That, that's an interesting point. So are there some, are there some common surgeries that you've seen as uh, repeat offenders in terms of things that um, potentially uh, result in some venous injuries? Yeah, I think that anytime you do a spine exposure, and I, I do a, quite, quite a few of them, the iliac veins are usually uh, mobilized. And sometimes you can just induce a DVT from that, but venous injuries during anterior exposures to the lumbar spine are certainly, I don't want to say commonplace, but a well-described complication. And if you can't repair them, they do get ligated from time to time. I think the things that we don't think about and don't pay as much attention to is the retroperitoneal strippings. That When someone has lymph nodes taken off the iliac vasculature, it's very common that the iliac veins get uh, abused, beat up. They, they, they can clot either acutely or they can become fibrotic from scar tissue later. Those are probably the two most common surgeries that I look at and ask about. Okay. Stephen, if, if you could kind of describe after you're finished with your initial assessment, can you kind of describe like if you had to paint a picture of like the ideal patient who you think is going to benefit from DVT treatment, can you kind of, um, kind of paint what that patient might look like? Not, not your, and then we'll also move on to like what it may be a more typical patient looks like, but this is like your ideal, if you could pick the patient that's walking into the room, what it would be. Oh, <laughs> uh, the unicorn. Uh, yeah. You know, I think the, 70 kilogram man, right? Yeah. The, the, you know, the ideal patient is the young, uh, healthy individual, male or female, who probably is uh, hypercoagulable and had their first episode of, of deep vein thrombosis, usually surrounding um, a flight or uh, sometimes an anatomic compression like a Mayther lesion. Um, they are mobile healthy, in shape, no contraindications to anticoagulation. Uh, usually they're young in their 20s, their 30s. Uh, and, and you know with the proximal DVT, let's say, that treating them is going to give them symptomatic relief and also prevent post syndrome down the line. 
especially because they're at high risk for having a recurrent thromboembolic event uh, as a result of their hypercoagulable state. And what would be the ideal time frame in which that you would be able to see this patient and intervene? I like to think as soon as possible. In, in reality, most of the time, uh, by the time these patients end up in the emergency room, they've been swollen, heavy, uh, symptomatic for a few days. It's very rare that someone wakes up that morning and, and drags themselves to the doctor's office. So I think most of the time when, when you're interacting with a patient, uh, even if they say they've only been symptomatic for a few days, probably the clot you're dealing with is a week, week and a half old. Okay, that's fair. Um, David, rather than describe um, the typical patient or, or the uh, ideal patient, can you describe someone who's maybe a more typical patient that you're used to seeing in your clinic, like more, one of the more uh, regular players? Absolutely. So I think the more regular people that we have um, in this region are the people that had an IVC filter placed some number of years ago, and it was forgotten about, or it was permanent. And we have a catastrophe with the number of permanent uh, trapeze filters that got placed and, and, and left in very young, otherwise healthy, usually women for some reason, that have now gone on to throw, thrombose their IVC, both iliac veins. Unfortunately, most of my patients aren't compliant. So when you guys are sitting there discussing the unicorn and I think, boy, that'd be a great patient to have that we're taking care of, one of the biggest you always find is that we've done our job. We've gotten the clot out. We've found the culprit lesion. We've stented an underlying lesion. And affordability of the novel oral anticoagulants is a real issue nowadays, particularly in the Medicare population when they just can't afford it in our region uh, or they're not going to take it, stop it on their own. I've had two young women, both in healthcare, both stopped their anticoagulation on their own because they knew better than we did, and both went on to rethrombose, which was a shame. Um, but yeah, most of my patients are people that I think were avoidable to begin with. Mm -hmm. uh, often, many of our patients are, are, are chronic, and they haven't sought help for years. And as Stephen was mentioning at the very beginning at the wound care center, there are hundreds of patients in my community and probably thousands in New Orleans and Washington, D.C. of patients that have had a prior DVT and they didn't know where to get help from. They got put on anticoagulation for three months, six months, depending on what protocol they were following, and they were out in the wilderness and they were doing okay and they didn't realize that the heavy, achy, throbby leg they were dealing with for ages treatable. And they also didn't know that they could have a new acute event on top of their chronic obstruction. So I think there is a, a need to educate the patient population and the physician population on who should be referred in. Taking a, a left turn a little bit and, and getting a, a little bit more technical in the procedure discussion, Stephen, can you talk about um, a little bit about like, let's get into like the procedure components and uh, an easy way to, to initiate this is uh, start out with, um, you can either describe your typical or, or ideal patient and just start with um, uh, where you treat these patients and maybe potential access sites um, where you're going to access these patients or, or how you begin to think about um, where you're going to access and how you're going to initiate the procedure. Yeah, it's a great question. I think that, you know, there's a lot of debate as to access site selection. And I think one of the key things is whether or not uh, you fall into the camp that every single uh, uh, inflow vessel needs to be treated or that you need to treat the, the major inflow vessel being the femoral popliteal segment to the common femoral or the external iliac. Uh, for the most part, I, I would recommend 
your access site being either the popliteal vein, the small saphenous vein, um, or if you, you buy into the, the treating the tibial inflow vessels, the, the PT, uh, as an access site. Because really, if you're doing catheter-directed thrombolysis, that's going to give you the maximum kind of bang for your buck in terms of uh, clot exposure to the TPA. Uh, you know, if you're using some of the uh, mechanical thrombectomy devices, you know, it kind of expands your access site selection. I think that in some cases you can come from the internal jugular vein, um, but still really then you're, you're, you're really focusing on the popliteal vein as an access site uh, because most of the mechanical thrombectomy devices aren't going to be supported in tibial veins. And if you enter into the common femoral vein, you really are running a risk of mixing, m- missing a lot of that proximal DVT. So I would really focus in on the popliteal vein or the tibial or, or the uh, posterior tibial vein uh, if you're doing catheter thrombolysis and if you're really focusing on mechanical thrombectomy, uh, such as using the Inari device or, or a penumbra device, then you can focus more on the internal jugular or the popliteal. Okay. Uh, David, same question with you. Um, how do you, oh, um, also uh, tell me, I guess both of you guys are opting, operating in like an endovascular suite or maybe an OR hybrid. I'm not sure. But David, can you kind of tackle the same question? Just kind of tell us uh, where you're operating. Sure. So I, I think from a location or, or patient access location, I think, again, Stephen said it right. Uh, you want to expose as much of the clot to therapy as you possibly can. And I think that some of the some of the confusion when the ATTRACT trial uh, results came out, where I think many people said we're not going to treat femoral popliteal DVTs, and with the subset analysis saying maybe iliac is the place that most of us are going to focus our energy, our time, uh, and the patient care that we're doing, in those patients, we often don't know where the clot is. So I think not getting appropriate inflow is a giant, giant complication. Uh, but to, to pivot, as you said, and talk about where I operate, um, again, I'm very fortunate. I work in a big system. I have two, um, we can call them IR suites, but I have two fixed imaging uh, uh, labs that are adjacent to our IR labs that are vascular surgery dedicated, available seven days a week. Uh, 24 hours a day for the vascular team where I work. We have two hybrid ORs as well, but for the most part, DVT intervention can be done awake with good moderate sedation in the prone position in the lab. I very rarely find the need to do a uh, DVT case in the hybrid OR unless I'm using the angiovac where I'm trying to, to really move large burden clot out of the IVC, both iliacs, both femorals, and those people I do under general anesthesia in the hybrid OR with perfusion. But pretty much everybody else is in the lab. Stephen, what percentage of your cases are you using uh, IVUS? 100%. 100%. I think that it goes back to something that we were talking about earlier, which is it's really surprising the number of cases you do where you, you, you do the ascending venogram and you think, wow, that vein looks great. You throw an intervascular ultrasound catheter in there. And you say, geez, you know, that's got 30% uh, circumferential or, or partial uh, thrombosis of the vein. Um, and so I, I think that without intravascular ultrasound, you are really under-assessing the extent of disease and the potential anatomic compressive lesion that may be leading to the disease. Uh, there are plenty of patients that come in where we get a CT venogram on them and it'll show extensive clot burden. And I'm not that impressed with the degree of compression, but then I'll throw an IVUS catheter in and I'll say, geez, you know, that's, that's 60, 70% cross-sectional area reduction of that, of that central vein that must've contributed to the, the thrombotic state. So uh, intravascular ultrasound, I think is really necessary in all these cases. David, same question to you about uh, intravascular ultrasound. I, 
again, like Steve and I are boring people, I guess. A hundred percent of cases get <laughs> intravascular ultrasound. But, but again, why wouldn't you? I mean, sure. it, it, it's not like we're getting duplicative imaging. The imaging provided by intravascular ultrasound can tell us what the clot morphology looks like. It can show us scarring on the wall. It can show us external compression. You don't know what you're not treating until you look. I, I, would, I would start to say that it's, it's beyond the standard of care at this point, that if you're not operating with IVIS when you're doing a DVT case, you're, you're breaching the standard of care, I would think, in 2020. What did you okay. think, Stephen? Absolutely. Completely agree. So also getting into uh, some of the techniques. So, so David, um, it broadly speaking uh, in terms like, how do you approach your patients in terms of trying to decide or, or how do you treat your typical patient with either uh, a directed or go ahead take it from there. Yeah. So I started to break uh, DVT therapy down into three generalized buckets. So thrombolytic therapy or pharmacomechanical therapy where we're delivering a drug plus or minus the mechanical device to uh, break it up is sort of bucket A. Uh, bucket B is pure aspiration technology. I think Stephen made mention to Penumbra already. They're probably the, the biggest horse in the race for that, uh, for pure aspiration. And the third bucket is purely mechanical, where we're not necessarily aspirating and we're going to eliminate the use of TPA. Uh, to really get the clot out with some mechanical means. I think at the end of the day, I look at a patient and say, if I can leave the case with an open vein, with the least amount of residual thrombus behind, I'm going to be really happy. So the second thing I'm going to say is that what are the risks of the procedure that I'm going to do? So thrombolytic therapy has the bleed risks that make some of us uncomfortable, but that's probably only true in frail patients, elderly patients, recent surgery patients, which make up probably half of my practice. So in half of the patients that show up, I may be able to offer them some thrombolytic therapy. In the other half, it's just sort of off the table. The next point is how fresh is this clot? The fresher the clot, the more likely I am to have aspiration work. So if somebody did clot yesterday and the unicorn shows up to the hospital with clot that formed yesterday, aspiration may be very successful. But unfortunately, as as we've all said, these people don't normally show up at a day and they show up usually at the beginning of the second week, day seven, eight, nine, where they've been at home, taken some time off from work, elevated, compressed their leg, and they just can't seem to get back to normal. And they've usually been on anticoagulation for that period of time where they got seen in the ER, put on a, a novel oral anticoagulant and come back to me. And that's where I found that a purely mechanical device has given me the best results at least in that population. Yeah, I think the time frame of clot is, is really key. Uh, there are plenty of patients who come in with a delayed presentation. Uh, um, you know, taking a step back again from that unicorn and really focusing on that 50% of people who have something else going on in their health that caused them to develop a clot. Uh, for the most part, what we're seeing are uh, oncology patients coming in with lower extremity DVT, uh, they either have or do not have metastatic disease, and those patients are really not good lytic candidates. Um, otherwise, we're seeing patients who are already hospitalized, who have either had uh, prolonged hospitalizations or orthopedic surgery with proximal DVT. And then the last are those people coming into the ER with some hypercoagulable state presenting with their first or their other recurrent DVT state. So for, for patients who are coming in and they have a contraindication to lysis or for lytic therapy. 
uh, for the most part, the chronicity becomes a little bit important, as, as Dave mentioned, because there's that sort of collagen base layer that gets, you know, there's collagen that gets deposited in the clot or transitions to the clot uh, starting around day four to five. Uh, and really, once that collagen stares to organize a matrix within the clot burden, it becomes a lot more challenging to mobilize with a device that's you know purely suction based uh, and that's where you, you know I start thinking about using something like the Inari clot retriever like the Inari flow retriever if it's in the IVC um, where you know if I'm thinking about penumbra, then I have to say, well, what am I going to do to break up some of these collagen based tendrils or or, or um, tethering pieces that are going to, you know, keep that clot attached to the vein wall and organized amongst itself. So sometimes you'll have to macerate using a balloon. Uh, for patients who are presenting in the more acute phase, you know, less than two weeks, if I'm going to use catheterated thrombolysis, uh, then, you know, I can put a clot in and I can see how the clot responds. I can use intravascular ultrasound again to see if there's any scarring or residual clot burden that's of different ages, uh, and then target that specifically using mechanical thrombectomy or uh, some sort of suction thrombectomy device. Yeah, so, so one of the things that I've done that has changed my practice recently is that as the world has added more devices to our armamentarium for the things that we can use, we've certainly all been faced with failures. So you put a thrombolytic uh, catheter in, whether that's a standard thrombolytic catheter or an ultrasound-enhanced thrombolytic catheter in, and you go back the next day. In some cases, you get an amazing technical result. And on venogram and on IVUS, the clot is gone. And on some cases, you have residual clot. So in those cases, the question is, what do you move on to next? And I think that that's one of the, one of the areas where we say, well, maybe at this point, thrombolytic therapy has failed. So switching from thrombolytics to pharmacomechanical thrombolytics probably not the right pivot for me. And that's where I think what Stephen was alluding to is you now have all these uh, dense pieces of fiber and these tendrils struck to venous wall, and I need to find out some way to physically remove them from the wall. And five years ago, I think that was uh, angiojet and balloon angioplasty, plus or minus a filter. And some of those pieces just kind of got mashed out of the way. Some got morselated, some embolized to a filter when one was placed. Uh, the addition of all these new mechanical devices has now allowed us to pull things off the wall. Um, I'm going to show next week at the American Venus Forum our first 10 uh, Inari clot fever cases, which were not part of the trial, were not part of the registry, and the majority of them were done for failure. They were done for failure of a different thrombectomy device. And that's sort of when I started to make my change over from being a thrombolytic-based interventionalist to a mechanical-based interventionalist, where I was trying to leave the operating room with as much of an open lumen as I could, pulling out as much clot as I could. And I really try to reserve thrombolytic therapy for those where I don't think that mechanical is going to give me adequate inflow. So if I have someone that has six tibial veins and four uh, calf muscle veins that are thrombosed and a pop and a small saphenous and a fem and an iliac, I don't know that mechanical is going to make me terribly happy because I'm still not going to have calf level inflow going into whatever I've thrombectomized. And that's really where I push frontline thrombolytic therapy. But otherwise, I've moved to mechanical pretty early. Well, there's okay. something also key to what you just said, you know, and, and it comes down to what you're going to do if you do see some sort of anatomic lesion, right? And if you have, a, if you're have, if you have to stent these patients, you really want to make sure you have as little residual thrombus as possible. I mean, there's a lot of emerging data and, and a couple good papers out there that have said, you know, the degree of thrombus that remains on that vein wall, even if it's 10, 15, 20% is associated with instant you know, thrombosis. Uh, we don't want to call it uh, instant restenosis, but instant thrombosis. 
And it's really challenging to treat that down the line, and that's going to predispose our venous patients to recurrent DVT. So, you know, I, I really believe in, in, in what you were just saying, which is you know, using whatever tool available to get as much of that thrombus out by intravascular ultrasound as possible. Yeah, so it's interesting that you said that, Stephen. So two, three, four years ago, and I think you were in some of the same venous denting trials that I was in, we couldn't even stent uh, acute DVT at the time of thrombectomy. We had to wait minimum of 90 days, depending on which stent, which trial we were looking at. And I carried that into my home practice, that if it was good enough for the trial, it was going to be good enough for my daily life. And very frequently, uh, I've been timid to stent in the early setting because of exactly what you said, that new data shows 10, 20, 30 uh, percent uh, flow limitations, you know, clinging to the wall may give me an stenosis later. So a thousand percent agree. Ivis venogram needs to be completely clean for me to want to stent somebody at the time of thrombectomy. So talking a little bit about uh, you, you guys have both referenced uh, moving to mechanical uh, thrombectomy earlier. Um, do you have any devices that, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of devices out there and sometimes it just means you have to learn either what you have access to and then know it inside and out. Or sometimes you like to try different things in different settings. Do you guys have any um, potential um, tips or, or go-to devices or techniques that you like um, that you've kind of developed over your practice after some, you know, trial and failures? I try to size the device to the clot that I'm removing. So I'm still a bit of a dinosaur, despite the fact that I'm just in my early 40s. So the first true mechanical device I was exposed to was the AngioVac by AngioDynamics. And I still use it on average once a month for complete occlusions of the IVC. And I have tinkered with, uh, I know Stephen just made mention to using the Flowtriever device in combination sometimes with a clot triever to pull out clots from both iliacs and the IVC. I have certainly done some successful cases with the uh, eight French penumbra catheter, the CAT-8. Um, but neither of those devices are yet really purpose-built for the IVC. And uh, fortunately, both those companies have, have up-and-coming new toys coming uh, that are meant to tackle IVC and IVC filter thrombosis. But at least for now in my algorithm, because I can get to a hybrid OR so efficiently and I can use perfusion, uh, that's still my, my toy of choice in the IVC. In the iliac veins, knowing the average iliac veins about 16 millimeters, I've used both the penumbra device mechanically and the Inari clot retriever device to clear out a acute or a subacute uh, iliac. I've certainly not. Uh, I've certainly found the Inari device can pull out very, very age-old things, which has surprised me given how uh, uh, soft this coring element truly is. Because I've not seen a lot of venous wall damage from it. Uh, but knowing it goes to 16 millimeters for an on average 16 millimeter iliac vein, that's probably my go-to device there. And if I am going to pull out something isolated in the fempop segment, I'm probably going to select the eight French uh, penumbra and stick, as Stephen made mention to yet again, the small saphenous vein, I think is a great access point to do a fempop thrombectomy in isolation. Okay. But again, it's a moving target. I mean, you turn around and there's a new device coming out. Uh, Steven, same question. Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do, uh, you know, again, uh, not that interesting. Uh, we're very similar in a lot of regards. But for me, also, the other thing I would take in consideration are some of the, the, the consequences of each device, and I would just put out there. Uh, if you're dealing with an angiojet, you may have a patient who already has acute kidney injury or chronic kidney disease, and you may not want to deal with the 
potential uh, issues of hemolysis or um, uh, or acute kidney injury as a result of the, the the hemolysis caused by the agitation from using like a Zolanti catheter. Um, if you have a patient who has really scarred uh, femoral popliteal segment that has had DVT in the past, and this is their second you know, session, you may not want to use uh, the, the clutch reaver device because of the sheath size and the potential need for having to go back into the venous system down the line, and they may already be scarring, and you may potentiate that scarring. So in that instance, you may want to switch back to the Zelanti or the Angiojet. There, there are, the great thing about having all these tools now is that you really get to think about each patient, what their disease is, and what their comorbidities are, and come up with kind of the best device for them. And one thing that keeps coming up, at least in terms of, uh, you know, some of these devices now are blood losses. You know, right now there's no way to reintroduce some of the aspirated material that you would take out with, let's say, a penumbra or a clot retriever or flow retriever device. And if you have a chronically ill patient who's been hospitalized, who's, let's say, uh, you know, has anemia or chronic disease or anemic for another reason or just had a major surgery with blood loss, you may not want to aspirate four or five, six of those large syringes of blood with an inability to give it back. So the, these these devices have really changed how we've been able to think about not only treating DVT, but what else is going on in the patient and what's the best device for that patient at that time. We mentioned the uh, NRE clot retriever. Can you can you talk a little bit about the device and anything that you particularly like or dislike? Any advantages or disadvantages to to using this device? Sure. So I started using the NRE clot retriever um, about a year and a half ago, uh, give or take, and it's a popliteal access sheath for me that has a nitinol basket that opens up inside the popliteal or femoral vein. We then put a large retrieving device inside this sheath and we're able to advance it past the thrombus. So from a popliteal, we can get it all the way up to capture clot from the terminal IVC, somewhere several centimeters below the renal veins usually, uh, open a 16 millimeter coring element And then above this coring element is a basket that'll collect whatever clot gets pulled off the wall and sort of funnels inside the basket. You pull it all the way down gently through until you reach your sheath. And once that's done, you can close your coring element down and pull the device out. In my practice, it takes me between four and nine passes to get a vein completely clean. Uh, At Viva in November, I presented the Uh, clout registry, which is the first 50 patients that were done in the U.S. as part of the registry data. And the average number of passes that most physicians took was three, if my memory served me right. Um, So it's a fairly efficient procedure. At that point, the clot can be removed from the basket, set off to the back table, and you can look at the morphology of the clot. And I think that's probably the most satisfying part about removing clot this way, is that we can tangibly identify what we've taken out. And it's, it's amazing the, the different type of clot that we can pull based on when patients had symptoms. You can really start to identify what's fresh clot, what's clot as it starts to organize a week to three weeks later, and what chronic things you can still remove after months of clot formation. All right. Steven, same question over to you. Um, pros, uh, cons, uh, advantages, disadvantages to the uh, Inari clot retriever? You know, I think there are a lot of uh, pros. I think one thing I would say is expanded patient selection. Uh, again, there's a very large oncology population that we were, ignoring is not the right word, I would say under-treating uh, as a result of the fact that they could not receive uh, 
thrombolysis. And I would say, you know, I've had a couple of my most emotionally satisfying patients in the last few months have been patients with uh, glios or astrocytomas who are coming in with extensive iliothermal DVT, poor quality of life, who would have been treated with just anticoagulation or a filter uh, and sent on their way. Um, and so, you know, the ability to treat people without thrombolytic therapy using these devices and getting a very, uh, a very good result with excellent thrombus resolution on IVIS is, is has been great. Um, you know, and I, I think there is something very satisfying about it in this day and age of seeing the clot you're taking out. Uh, uh, you know, catheter thrombolysis is kind of delayed gratification, but we all like the uh, ability to pull this device out. And sometimes I feel like I'm, you know, I'm trawling for fish on the back of a boat because I pull out this, you know, the basket and it's full of clot. It's, it's, it's a great feeling. Uh, you know, you're doing something for these patients when it's indicated. Um, sure. I, I will say so, though that I've had a couple of patients who, uh, due to the sheath size, you know, I've had seen, I've seen some more neurologic complications. I haven't had anything permanent, but um, as a result of the sheath size and accessing the popliteal vein, um, a few more patients complaining of numbness or paresthesias down the back of the leg, into the foot. Um, but again, nothing that's been permanent, nothing that has made me question the device or question the access sheath size. Sure. David, so, you were... So, yeah, I'll say the biggest pro that I have has nothing to do with the device. It has to do with the company. So we don't have data on the vast majority of DVT devices and interventions that are used today. And I think that those of us who sort of uh, eat and sleep in the venous world uh, look at a device and go, well, in my hands, in my experience, this is how it works. This is the results I can expect. But I mean, even the, the amount of internal research and tracking that I do and Stephen does, I don't know that we can honestly tell you what many of these devices do. Anari has made a dedicated effort to invest in the venous space, um, sometimes to their successes and sometimes to their own detriment. The, the clout registry has an extraordinary amount of data points that they are trying to actively collect despite being a registry. I mean, most registries are not nearly this robust. They're really just there to encourage use of a device uh, and maybe gather some data so they can put an endpoint saying, well, here's, here's how it did. But the number of, of uh, data points we have and the long-term follow-up that will hopefully be generated about this should set the bar for all devices that come to say, we need to figure out how to treat DVT. We need to figure out what happens with these patients long-term. And Denari, as you said with the little ad you did in the beginning, is a, is a venous company. So it appears that they're doing the same thing in the pulmonary embolism space as well. They certainly seem to be data-driven or at least uh, – um, scientifically motivated and curious to find the right answers. Sure. Speaking a little bit about the data, and I think, uh, David, you may have brought this up earlier. Has the ATTRACT trial um, changed your clinical practice at all, or maybe even changed referral patterns to you? So I'm young enough that ATTRACT came out um, when I was only a couple years in practice. And when I had started in practice, I was really focusing DVT treatment on people who had large burden clot in the IVC and the iliacs. And for the most part, was not treating isolated femoral popliteal DVT alone. And I think that's probably true of most people uh, at the time that Attract came out who were doing a large number of venous interventions. So I don't, it has not changed my practice because again, I'm doing the highly symptomatic large clot burden patients that typically have extensive iliac and or IVC involvement. And very rarely do I do an isolated uh, femoral vein alone. 
That's fair. Uh, Steven, same question to you uh, with regards to any um, changes uh, with regards to the attract trial. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I think the one thing I would say about the attract trial, in a way, it's been a, a I'll be like very silver lining about it. It's been a positive because when I do talk about the treatment in, uh, for DVT, a lot of times uh, based on either journal clubs or what people have read or, or misunderstandings of the attract trial, people will come back either in the emergency room or the primary care environment and say, oh, but wasn't there that trial that said this doesn't work? And the nice thing about that is, is you, you can use that as a springboard to say, well, actually, it's a little more nuanced than that. And let's talk about the disease state and let's talk about the limitations of the trial. And it's really been a good opportunity to have a conversation with referring providers. Um, but that's very silver linings. Uh, the, the reality is, I think, for most people who were doing deep venous intervention, the ATTRACT trial didn't necessarily change their practice pattern. Uh, and I, I think that it was, uh, you know, there's some limitations in the trial that, um, you know, people have widely discussed, uh, but, you know, don't necessarily correlate with what we're doing in the real world right now. Now that we've kind of discussed devices, techniques, um, when do you consider a procedure over or when, when do you like in the ideal patient and also in your typical patient, like when is the procedure done? You know, in an ideal world, it's when the clots are removed. Uh, when I see, you know, I try and tell my residents and fellows less than 5% residual thrombus in, uh, in the femoral popliteal segment or the iliofemoral segment. Um, sometimes, you know, it's, you, no matter what you do, you're not going to achieve that goal. You, you have run your angiojet, you've done catheter thrombolysis, you've passed your clot retriever device, or you've used your, you know, your CAT-8, you've used all devices at your disposal and you haven't hit that goal. Um, and in those cases, you know, I go back to kind of what we were talking about earlier, where uh, sometimes you put the patient on Lovenox, uh, it has some anti-inflammatory properties for three, four weeks. You can always bring them back, re-image, uh, and you see how they're doing from a symptomatic standpoint. But my goal is generally as much clot as possible. That's fair. Uh, David, same question. Yeah, so I don't think that there's a such thing as good enough. I think that this is one of those operations where tenacity is probably fairly important. Um, the advantage of, again, having a hybrid OR if we need it or general anesthesia if we need it is that if the patients get uncomfortable from what we're doing, A, we can always change to a different device. So if we've chosen to do a mechanical thrombectomy uh, by any device we've mentioned so far and we're unhappy with the results, we can always park a lytic catheter in and come back the next day. And we've talked about the ideal patient and the ideal timing, um, but very little of that has to do with our personal schedule. And I think that's probably important to say that there's never a better time to take clot out than now. So a patient comes in every day that you leave that behind, it just makes your job that much harder. Um, I like Steven's number of 5% clot left behind. Um, I don't know where he got that one from. Um, I probably, probably the same place that I would have pulled that same number out of, which is I want to just see it completely clean. I think a better question is what do we do when we aren't done? When no matter what we've done, uh, we still have a large burden of thrombus behind. And I think he sort of alluded to it, which is anticoagulation, anticoagulation, anticoagulation. I would probably back out to uh, thrombolytic therapy, park them for a day, come back, see what's chronic, and do everything in my power not to stent today if I could help it. 
and you know, to clarify, uh, I'll tell you where the 5% came from. In talking to the residents and fellows and in talking to people in our community here, if you said, oh, very, very little clot, oftentimes you'll run the IVUS catheter through the, the, the little cable segment. And you know, I, I'm sure we've all seen it. It's that very, very thin line of residual thrombus in the vein. And people are like, oh, yeah, I'll throw my stent in that. And that's exactly what I don't think you want to throw a stent into. So if, somebody, you know, if you say like 10% or 15% or a little bit, people see that that rim layer left and they think it's okay to proceed. So that's why I usually say 5% because usually that triggers a, another level of concern for people. They're like, Ooh, that's almost nothing. And that's really what you want. Like we're saying almost nothing. Yeah. Sure. I mean, the, the hard part is that the longer we're in there, the more likely we are to cause damage. So some of that damage is true. And some of that damage is th- theoretical. So most of us cut our angiojet time off at 300 seconds because at 300 seconds, we think the hemolysis risk probably outweighs the added benefit of further thrombectomy. Um, with a penumbra device, the more passes we make, the more blood loss there is. With a flow retriever device, the more passes we make, the more blood loss there is. With a clot retriever device, the more passes we make, the more likely we may be to have some interval disruption. And again, those are all theoretical. I can't prove to you that we're doing anything wrong in any of those situations, but at some point, we all suffer from the laws of diminishing returns. Sure, absolutely. Um, so David, you touched, uh, touched on it just a little bit in your last statement, but um, let's say you're finished with uh, your patient. You've removed as much clot as humanly possible. You have good inflow. You have good outflow. What does your anticoagulation protocol look like for these patients? And does it vary um, depending on either stent, no stent or acute subacute clot? Um, Talk a little bit about the anticoagulation that patients are going home on. Sure. So the best thing that I've done to date is we created separate preoperative instructions for our venograms because venograms often fell under standard angiogram instructions and our angiogram patients were holding their anticoagulants pre-op. And I will do just about any venous intervention that I plan to do on therapeutic anticoagulation. So assuming a patient has come in on an anticoagulant that they seem to be happy with and they're not failing, I want them therapeutic on it when they hit the door. I will question them in pre-op holding if they've taken it because, as we know, there are assassins everywhere who will look to, you know, ruin our day. And someone told the patient, oh, please stop your Xarelto, your Lovenox, your Eliquis, uh, and they held it for a day. So if, if they've held it, I give them a dose of Lovenox before they get on the table. So at the very least, I've got an oral 10A or an injectable 10A therapeutic during the procedure. During the procedure, if they're on an anticoagulant, I'll still bolus 5,000 units of of IV heparin uh, just to give something acute onset acting while I'm doing my work. If it's a terribly high-risk case when they get off table, I will give them another 5,000 units of IV heparin. I typically just manage these patients post-op with whatever they were on pre-op. I have not migrated my practice to three to four weeks of Lovenox, which I know a lot of people are doing right now. I don't seem to have a terribly high number of failures where I think it's necessary, but anytime I see a failure, Lovenox is my go-to backup drug. Uh, Post-procedure, if they got a stent, everyone's going to get 300 milligrams of Plavix. I've not moved to the cardiology world of 600 milligrams. If they're a terribly high-risk patient where I'm really worried about their stent, I will send a Verify Now lab uh, specific to Plavix. And I will check it before they go home to make sure they're a Plavix responder. Knowing that 20 to 30% of our patients are non-Plavix responders, I only want to put people on Effian or Berlinta on those who I think really need it. And then the last, 
Yeah. The last thing I do for anticoagulation is I coach my patients that if they're on Eliquis or Xarelto, they're on a higher dose when they walk out of the hospital. They're on uh, uh, twice a day dosing of Eliquis for seven days. Uh, They're on the higher dose Xarelto dosing for 21 days. So I tell them all on day eight or day 22, depending on what drug you're on, if your symptoms come back that day, I want to call immediately to the office. I'll probably just tell them to take the extra dose before they come in, and they come in and get duplex imaging immediately. Because there is a very clot-prone window after we do what we're doing. And I've not found a perfect anticoagulant for any of these people yet. And Stephen, anything with regards to activity or uh, compression as far as uh, after the procedure? Yeah, so I I am not a uh, some people talk about purse strings or sutures if you're in, in the, for popliteal access. I generally tend to uh, leave the sheath in at the con- conclusion of the case. I'll wrap the leg with a layer of Curlex. I'll put a compressive sort of dressing right where the sheath is. Remove the sheath and I'll wrap a coband all the way up the leg. And at that point, if the patient's not ambulatory, I'll even put an SCD on so that we get uh, almost a simulation of that calf pump muscle moving right away. And I want the people to be up and active as soon as possible, if, if that is possible. If not, and they're still in the hospital or they're bedbound, then I'll keep an SCD on just to keep the blood flowing through the recanalized venous segment. Because again, it's that stasis that's going to cause recurrence of disease. Uh, even if the patient is fully anticoagulated, if the blood has nowhere to go and it's static, it's going to rethrombose. Okay. Excellent. Um, afterwards, uh, David, once you finish the procedure, you have a successful procedure, how are you tracking these patients or not necessarily tracking, but what's, what's your typical follow-up? Uh, how often are they seeing you? How often are you getting any follow-up imaging? And, um, just talk a little bit about, um, your post-procedural care. Yeah, happy to. Um, I want to go back to what Stephen just said, because I, I don't want people who are listening and want to learn, uh, how to do some of these treatments to miss what he just said. Uh, the addition of SCDs periprocedurally is incredibly important. We really don't know how well most of our anticoagulants are working throughout their stay in the hospital. So on a case that I thought was a difficult thrombectomy case, I will strap those SCDs the minute the popliteal sheath comes off in recovery and make sure they're running before I walk away from the patient. So I, again, I know, I know Stephen just said it, but I want to stress to people who are out there listening that if your, your recovery unit doesn't have SCD machines and SCD sleeves, you need to get them. I think it's really important because acute failures, I don't, we don't talk about our failures very often publicly. I know Steve, Steve and I have been on panels together where we're willing to, to talk about all the bad things we've done and the bad outcomes we've gotten. But the utilization of SCDs, I think, has saved my tail more than once. So you asked me about follow-up. So yeah. I'm, again, I'm very lucky in my office. I have nurse practitioners, fellows, and residents who see people either with me or independently. So we can use a fairly rigid follow-up scheme. So in the first year, they're seen at a month, three months, six months, and 12 months. And at the second year, they're seen at 18 months and 24 months. And then from that point on, they're seen once a year. I've only been here eight years, so I have not found the ability to get rid of most of my patients yet uh, who who have had DVTs unless they're truly uh, symptom-free resolved and I've taken them off anticoagulation. When I see them back at every one of those visits, I do a venous duplex of the segments that I treated. So in some cases, that's just an IVC duplex. In other, that's an IVC duplex and a lower extremity duplex. Very rarely do I add lab work on. Obviously, if someone's on warfarin, they're going to get an INR. I do an awful lot of anti-10A levels for people that are on Lovenox. 
if I'm worried there's an occult clot that I just can't see on uh, duplex. Again, I think much like New Orleans, the Hampton Roads patients, the region where I work, are, are a bit larger than the average American. So seeing the iliac veins is often a challenge. I will add a D-dimer from time to time to see if that pops higher, if I'm, if I'm highly concerned there's a clot. But typically, if I'm that worried, I'll just do a venogram and look with an IVUS. Sure. Uh, Stephen, uh, same question to you uh, with regards to follow-up of your patients. Sure. Uh, you know, similar algorithm. The one thing I'll add is for patients who I do perform deep venous stenting on, uh, I will get some coaxial imaging at least once a year uh, or, an, or an x-ray, a plain film, if they don't want the CT scan. And uh, on that, I'm looking for any stent deformation or change in the conformation of the stent, which would be indicative of scarring in the vein uh, and a, a chance for failure. Uh, or I'm looking for thrombus that's, that's relining the, the stents on that type of imaging as well. Uh, but I, I'll go back and emphasize, if you've done a good Vilalta score or a VCSS score, oftentimes that's the first thing to change. And so, you know, in addition to that duplex that you're getting at three, six, nine months, if you're asking the patients how they feel symptomatically, uh, oftentimes, you know, in the same way that you would imagine an ABI would change if someone had recurrent arterial disease in the lower extremity for uh, after an intervention, uh, you'll see that that VCSS score, that Vilalta score start to change. And patients know their body. And uh, it's remarkable the number of times I'll get a text message or a call from a patient because uh, Unfortunately, I give my phone number out way too much. But um, hey, you know, uh, I'm really noticing that you know that that my skin's getting shinier, or it looks a little redder, or it's getting a little more woody, uh, and, and they'll come back in and they know that they have some recurrent disease. Sure, sure. All right, um, guys, we covered a lot of topic today, a lot of uh, material. Anything that we failed to mention, or anything, any uh, stone that uh, we didn't turn over, uh, David? You know, I'll just say that uh, Venus work is a team sport. And you were gracious enough as an interventional radiologist to have two vascular surgeons on your podcast. And I sort of went through who you've had on in the past, and I don't know that you've ever done a, a pair of surgeons on here. And it's, it just sort of goes to show that you know, this is all of us who are participating in this care. There's certainly more disease in the venous space than there are physicians to do it. And I think I'm just happy to be part of the conversation. So thank you for the invitation. Yeah, of course. Uh, to the audience, uh, thank you guys for listening. We covered a lot of material today. If you guys enjoyed the podcast and want to support the show, here are two easy ways. First, take one second and press the subscribe button on whatever platform you are listening on. This helps uh, platforms like iTunes or Spotify know that you, our audience, value what we're doing and you're interested in getting our latest content as it's coming out. Uh, Second, if you really are getting value from these podcasts, please go to iTunes and leave us a short written review. This helps us in so many different ways. Plus, we'd love to get the feedback. That about wraps things up. We'll see you next time on The Back Table.